Welcome to Hope Chapel's Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. And we also want to invite you to join us in person at a worship service Friday at 7, Saturday at 6, or Sunday mornings at 9 or 11. Good morning. Almost afternoon. Please open your Bibles to Acts 21, verse 17, and we'll read the text together. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. They are zealous for the law. And they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to the customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourselves along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city. And they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some of the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. Now you may know we're coming towards the end of the book of Acts. We're at the end of Paul's third missionary journey, his final trip to Jerusalem, And the book of Acts spends the first 12 or so chapters in Jerusalem and in Judea and in the surrounding region. And then there's this transition to the ministry of Paul. And we've watched as he's gone on three missionary journeys into places where Greeks, where Gentiles live, and there aren't Jews for the most part. And a great deal of his ministry is really impactful there. He goes into these places that have not heard much about Judaism and certainly haven't heard about Jesus. And he preaches the gospel. And a bunch of Gentiles, they come to faith in Jesus. 
And then we've now arrived at the moment where he returns to Jerusalem for the final time. And he stops in Caesarea, a city near Jerusalem. And we read this. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Manasseh of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. Manasseh probably being one of the Jews who converted to Christianity in the early chapters of Acts. And this is going to be the last friendly roof that Paul stays under. By the end of the passage we have this morning, he'll be in chains. He'll spend two years in prison in Caesarea. Then he'll be sent on a ship to Rome where he'll be under house arrest. And most likely, although the book of Acts doesn't tell us this, we think Paul was executed in Rome. This is the end of Paul's life. And the rest of it is probably spent in chains. And it's at Jerusalem that he's first arrested. Why does he go back? Who remembers why Paul's going to Jerusalem? To bring the collection. You may know that there's been tensions between Gentiles and Jews in the early church. And one of the things that Paul is doing is he's collecting money from the Gentile churches to bring back to Jerusalem, which is currently undergoing a famine. They're impoverished. They need funds in order to have the necessities of life. And Paul is bringing money that Gentile churches have faithfully collected and are offering to the Jewish church, to the church in Jerusalem. That's why he's going back. It's this moment where the unity of the church might be expressed and also a powerful witness of gospel love seen throughout that city. Whether you're a Christian or not, you might see how great it is that these Greeks, these people who didn't grow up in Jerusalem, who maybe don't know a lot about Judaism, are willing to give their money so that you might have a better life as you're struggling. So Paul comes back. He meets in the temple with a number of the other Christian leaders. And as they're gathered together, Paul relays to them the things that have happened on his missionary journeys. We read this, after greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. He probably tells them places and specific names of people who are leaders in the church, maybe those who are enemies of the church. He tells them all the things that have happened. And then we get this really, really great response on the part of the Jewish Christians who are hearing these stories. We read this, and when they heard it, what'd they do? They glorify God, reaffirming to us who the hero of the story is. As Paul's telling this story, as he's talking about his three missionary journeys, you can imagine the sort of character that's displayed. Paul's intelligent. He's a good preacher. He's a good teacher. He goes to new places. He gives up all kinds of things to go to these places. He's brave, right? You remember he goes to Lystra. What happens in Lystra? He gets stoned. They drag him out of the city and they stone him and they think he's dead and they leave. And then Paul gets back up because he's not actually dead. Then he runs away as quick as possible. No, he, he walks right back into the city that stoned him. That is unbelievable. So his courage is on display. His bravery is on display. He performs some miracles. He's probably got some companions who are there with him as he's telling the story of his missionary journeys. And I imagine they're including details of the things that Paul has done. And it would be hard to look through the three missionary journeys of Paul and not think this guy is a hero of the faith. And that's true. He is a hero of the faith. But everyone in the room who holds Jesus to be their Lord acknowledges that the hero is God himself. Not Paul. Paul, like us, is dispensable. God is the victor. 
every supernatural feat or miracle, every turned heart, every new church, every act of bravery is first and foremost a victory of God. Amen? This is one of Paul's greatest convictions, his desire to be an obedient servant of God. So then he tells his story. Look at all the things that God has done out amongst the Greeks, amongst the Gentiles. And then we hear from the Jewish Christians. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed. So they said, you were out in other places in foreign lands and places where there are not a lot of Jews. And as you were there, you saw God work and hearts turn and people came to faith in Jesus. And while you were gone, God has been moving here as well. And a bunch of Jews have come to faith in Jesus also, have come to claim Jesus as their Lord. And we've seen it already in Acts. You remember Peter's first sermon, thousands were added to their number that day. So God's been moving there. We see lots of Jewish Christians, and we see Paul as the representative of many Gentile Christians. But along with this fact, the fact that many Jews had come to faith in Jesus is this sort of renewed obstacle for the unity of the church and the proclamation of the gospel. And James and the Jewish Christian elders describe it to Paul here. They say this, many thousands have come to faith. They are zealous for the law. And they've been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or, walk, or to walk according to our customs. They've heard a rumor about Paul. The accusation is this. As Paul has gone to the places where Gentiles live, in many of these cities and communities, there'd be small groups of Jews who live together. We call them diaspora Jews. They're groups of Jews who don't live in Jerusalem or the surrounding area. They've moved out to some other place in, in Galatia or in um, Ephesus or in some other city. And the rumor that the Jewish Christians have come to believe is that as Paul goes to these places, he's prohibiting those Jews if they convert to Christianity, from continuing with Mosaic law, with circumcision and various rites of devotion and abstaining from certain foods and things like that. Now, you can prohibit something, you can command something, right? And then there's this middle ground where something is neither prohibited or commanded. Does that make sense when I say that? Okay. The Jews have come to believe that Paul is prohibiting Christian Jews from engaging in Mosaic law. And here's, here's why this matters. Many of the greatest enemies of the Jews in the history leading up to the New Testament were so evil in that they outlawed or made it very difficult for Jews to practice the Mosaic law. Circumcision was given to Abraham to mark the covenant that God made with him. The Mosaic Law, after God delivers the people from the oppression of the Egyptians, was a way that they marked themselves off as God's people and showed devotion to him. I want us to see that Jewish law, for many of these people, was a profound act of worship as a way that they could show their devotion to God. So they're hearing Paul go around saying, you can't do those things anymore. That's what they think he's doing. Why might they think this about Paul? Well, if we're familiar with some of Paul's letters, we can go to a couple places that it sounds a little bit like Paul is saying things like this, especially if you're hearing it second or third hand. We can go to 1 Corinthians where he says this, To the Jews I become as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I become as one under the law, though not being myself under the law. That I might win those, I'll go back one second, that I might win those under the law. 
To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. Kind of like, okay, a lot going on there. Romans. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under what? We can go back to 1 Corinthians, another famous one. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the mark of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Now again, Paul is in this middle area, neither prohibiting nor commanding, but if this information came secondhand or thirdhand to the zealous Christian Jews living in Jerusalem, you might see how they would come to think that Paul was going around telling their Jewish Christian brothers that they must not practice the law. But that's not what Paul is doing. He doesn't believe that. And we can see it, I think, most clearly in the letter to the Galatians. Who's read Galatians? Okay, so if you haven't, because it seems like some of haven't, I recommend reading it. It's part of our Bible. It's a good letter. It's very short. It's a 25-minute read. It's Paul's angriest letter, for sure. For sure. Paul is an angry minister in this letter. Like, the story is this. Paul goes to the region of Galatia, and as he goes there, he's going to, like, meeting people who are not Jewish. They probably don't know about Moses or the temple. They're not familiar with Jewish law. They don't know the story of the Exodus and all kinds of stuff like that. Just people who are, like, foreign to him in almost every regard. And then what he does is he preaches the name of Jesus to them. And as he explains who Jesus is, some of them come to find Jesus to be their Lord. Their hearts turn and they're converted. And there's these new little churches made up of people who are not Jewish. They're ethnically Galatians or from the region of Galatia. And it's great. It's a miracle. It's amazing. And he leaves. And then while he's gone, this group of false teachers come in, sometimes called the Judaizers, and they meet the Galatians who are worshiping this Jewish Messiah, and they say to the Galatians, no, no, you can't worship the Jewish Messiah if you don't obey the Jewish law. You have to be Jewish to worship the Jewish Messiah. So you need to get circumcised. You need to obey the Mosaic law. You need to be a part of this particular people so that you might be saved. You can't just worship Jesus. You have to obey Jewish law. So Paul finds out. He gets his pen out and his paper. He just writes a letter, sends it off to the Galatians. They receive it. They gather all the churches together, excited because they got this letter from Paul. <laughs> Come here, we got a new letter from Paul. Let's read it together. Oh, Galatians, who has bewitched you? <laughs> some, some tough correspondence there. The poor guy who had to read that out loud. Paul is saying... It is not the pattern of following the Mosaic law. It is only faith in Jesus that saves you. If you think works of the law or moral works or being a great guy or achieving amazing things or being super intelligent or whatever is a means to salvation, you're wrong. That's a dead end. The only means to salvation is the finished work of Jesus at the cross. So it's a gospel issue. It's not the Mosaic Law itself. It's not acts of devotion that are part of the Mosaic Law. It's not whether you're circumcised or not. It's not whether you um, do various purification rites or, not, or whether you abstain from certain foods. The issue is whether you think those things save you or not. That's still true today. Anything that you think saves you. Anything that you think saves you. How great you think you are. How talented we think we are. How 
regular we attend church, how often we read our Bible, how much we pray. Those might be indications of salvation, but they certainly do not save us. The finished work of Jesus. That's it. So it matters to Paul. So he writes letters like that. But it has gotten back to the Jewish Christians who are still zealous for the law, who still want to practice it because it still matters to them. It's part of their life. They show their devotion to God this way, have come to believe that Paul is saying you can't do those things. So they hatch a plan. The elders together with Paul. We can read it here. Do therefore what we tell you. This is the elders speaking to Paul. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourselves along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. So they say to Paul, we know that you don't prohibit practicing Mosaic law in certain regards. You don't prohibit showing devotion to God by some of the things that you've grown up showing devotion to God by. So just go with them, be purified with them, pay for their rights, and show them. And Paul agrees, because it's not a gospel issue. He chooses out to act out in unity. And we see throughout this like immediate part here and over the course of this rest of this chapter, Paul sacrificing things that matter to him. We see him as a model of self-sacrifice. I hear we've been talking a lot about priorities. Is that right? You got a couple of sermons on that? Or one sermon twice? Is that right? What you sacrifice shows you what you care about, what you prioritize. Your sacrifice shows your conviction. And what happens is Paul's convictions become clear. They get showcased by his self-sacrifice. Does that make sense when I say that? Oh, sorry. Does that make sense? Paul's convictions become clear through his sacrifice. So I think he sacrifices a number of things. The first is this. Paul sacrifices status. Paul sacrifices status. There are probably a lot of ways to deal with the fact that rumors were circulating about Paul and that people believe certain things about him. He could have just presumed on the fact that he's apostle, an apostle. He could say, I saw Jesus, I'm an apostle, one of the leaders, stop questioning me. He doesn't do that. He could have said, I just brought you guys a lot of money from Gentile Christians who obviously care about you. Why are you causing a fuss about these things? But he doesn't do that. There's another way that makes the most sense to me. He could have just said, let me explain to them why I'm right. Who likes to be right? A few of you. It's really, I like being wrong a lot. I like to be right. I asked my daughter, what did you learn today? And she's like, I don't know. But when she's in the room with her brother at night when they go to sleep and there's some sort of fight, I can open the door and she can lay out all the infractions that he's leveled against her with the precision of an attorney. <laughs> she likes to be right. How about this? Who likes Jersey Mike's? I got a cheer for Jersey Mike's. I like Jersey Mike's. Here's something else. Who knows that if you have a gift card that has less than $10 on it, you can cash it in, and the business has to give you cash for it in the state of California. Did you know that? I know that. So I had a gift card to Jersey Mike's that had $8 on it, and I go inside of Jersey Mike's. So I want that gas money. And I say, uh, excuse me, sir, I have a gift card with under $10 on it. I'd like you to cash this out for me. And he goes, I'm sorry, I don't think we do that, sir. So I get my phone out, go to California.gov. I, sc I scroll to the correct section, and I say, you know, I think that you probably do. 
with all the smugness you can imagine on my face. Just imagine it. And he takes the phone from me and goes to the back of the shop, I'm assuming to consult with the on-site legal team. <laughs> he comes back out and he's like, uh, did you read subsection B? And he hands me the phone like, <laughs> and I realize that I'm wrong. And I walk out to my car and I'm just so dejected, I like kind of buckling myself in, looking at it, just trying to gather myself from this recent terrible defeat. Then I realize he's on the wrong page and I scroll back, I'm like, no, I'm right, round two, I'm going back in. <laughs> so I, I unbuckle, open my door, walk back in. You can imagine they're really excited to see me again. <laughs> and I was like, uh, have you read, you know, this section? And then I, I walked out of there that day with $8, which was great. Now, now, here's the deal. Here's the deal. I realize when I tell that story, I am the villain. I hope that you see that. I do not like, look, like, look like a very good guy in that story. And I, and I want you to say this very much the point, right? I insisted on being right, right? You know who doesn't like to see me anymore? The guys at that Jersey Mike's. They do not like to see me. Rightfully so. Paul could have said, I hear there's people who believe rumors about me that aren't true. Get them all together. Bring them to the temple, sit them down, and I will deliver a lecture explaining why I am right. But he doesn't do that. He doesn't do that. He sacrifices his status of being right to express the unity and love he has for his fellow believers. He says, I'll go with them. I'll go with them. I will take on the purification rites. I will pay their expenses. I'll do all the things you say because that matters more to me than being right. I will make that sacrifice. You see that? It's a powerful lesson. What's more important? Unity or just being right? If you're married, you know which one it is. <laughs> so he sacrifices status. He sacrifices resources. He sacrifices resources. Not only does he engage in the actual purification right, he also pays for their purification rights, the, the fees that they owe. Now, here's some background that might be helpful here. It is likely, although we cannot be sure, that these four men were engaged or finishing up their Nazarite vow as described in number six. They would engage in sort of like a period of heightened purity where they wouldn't shave any of their hair and they would only eat certain foods even more so than normal. They would avoid corpses so they wouldn't go to funerals, even funerals of like close family members to avoid contact with a corpse and being rendered unclean. And at the end of this time, after these four men had done this process, they would come to the temple with their hair and with three animals each. It would be a female unblemished lamb, a male unblemished lamb, and an unblemished um, ram. And then a grain and a drink offering. So if you're counting, that's 12 animals. <laughs> that's how much this costs. Paul pays that. I want us to see that this would not have been an insignificant amount of money. It would have not been like taking someone out for a coffee. It would have been like paying someone's rent for a little while. He is incurring significant costs. He's not just doing the purification, right? He's paying for it. Here's why I think this is important. I think money, money becomes the most tangible indicator of where our hearts really are at. For sure, in terms of how tangible it is. It's quantified. If I go to a pizza shop and I want a pizza, the guy says, the pizza's $11.99. I give him $11.99. I'm like, give me the pizza, right? It's exactly that number. If I go shopping and I'm going to buy like a, a new shirt or a new hat or something like that, and I say, you know, that one's too expensive, I'm literally saying that object is not worth that much money to me, and I can give you a number. 
So although I don't think money is everything, I don't think it's the root of all evil, although it is a root of a kind of evil, I think that it's a powerful indicator of where our hearts are at. It really does show us what we love. So Paul pays this. Paul pays these expenses. And just to remind you, he's not a man of means. Maybe at one point in his life he had money, but he doesn't anymore. He has gone without for long periods of time. He spent time in prison, barely surviving, almost starving. He doesn't even always have the necessities of life, but he spends this money for these other four men. Why? Because his convictions matter more. So he sacrifices on behalf of the unity of the church and the proclamation of the gospel. So here's, here's an exercise we can do in our lives. It's a painful one. We go to our bank statements, we look at where we spend our money, and we allow them to tell us what we love. It really will show you that. It really will. It can be really painful. You can see how many times you buy certain sorts of things or go certain sorts of places. And I think the contents of our hearts can be revealed that way. And the question you ask is this. Do my convictions, based upon where I spend my money, match Paul's convictions? You follow me on that? Do that exercise. It's painful, but I suggest it. Can you imagine if they had come to Paul and said, all right, Paul, we want you to engage in the purification rites. And he said, no problem. And we want you to pay for it. And he's like, well, hold on. <laughs> Let's negotiate a little bit. I got a retirement I'm really worried about. I don't want to give you my money. That's not what Paul says. Paul says this, I'm in. I am in. I'm in. He sacrifices his status. He sacrifices his resources. Next, he sacrifices his safety. Go back to verse 27. It's been a while since we've been there. So let's just read it again real quickly. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who is teaching everyone, everywhere, against the people and, and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together, they seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, <coughs> words came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them, and when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. <coughs> when the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains, he inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd for the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. Just to recap, Paul goes to the temple to express unity, to actually abide by Jewish law on behalf of other brothers. And when he gets there to proverbially file the paperwork and hand it in and do the actual thing he said he was going to do, people begin a riot. They think actually what has happened is Paul, who had been seen with Gentile companions, in this case Trophimus, one of the Ephesians, that he's brought this guy into a portion of the temple grounds where Gentiles are not allowed to go. And when he did that, he, Gentile, he would have um, defiled the temple. Now, Paul didn't do that. 
But there was the assumption that he had done that. So things go sideways. There's a mob, this huge mob ensues. People are angry. His life is in danger. He's dragged out of the temple. Then help comes from this unlikely place. There's a Roman garrison stationed nearby. And so the Roman soldiers come down and they grab Paul and lift him up from the violence. They take him to the steps. They have to carry him because the people want to beat him to death. He's saved, but he's still bound, put in chains. Now, we should have come to expect this sort of thing to happen. Everywhere Paul goes, there's division. Everywhere he goes, he's kind of a rabble-rouser. He preaches the gospel, and there's division. Some people respond, they convert, they see the truth, they find hope in, in Jesus, and some people oppose it. There's riots in Lystra, there's riots in Thessalonica, there's 25,000 gathered together in the stadium in Ephesus crying out, great is Artemis of Ephesus. Wherever he goes, there's trouble. So it's not a Sunday school picnic when he gets to Jerusalem. There's a problem. There's danger. And he's been told over and over and over again, do not go back to Jerusalem. That's where Jesus died. That's where Stephen died. That's where many others have died. If you go back there, bad things are going to happen. He gets told, do not go back. Why does he go back? Aside from the fact that he's bringing a collection, why does he go back? Why does he still go? What did Zach preach about last week? And before you answer, you should know, if you get it wrong, he'll come back next week, and he'll preach it again to you. They think I'm joking, Zach. <laughs> what did he preach about last week? Courage, the courage of conviction. And Paul's conviction was this. God had called him. He was called by God. His greatest concern was that he would be an obedient servant of Jesus. So chains don't matter. They don't matter. Danger doesn't matter. Being safe doesn't matter. He's going to go back. He gets told, don't go back, don't go back, don't go back, don't go back. And every time he's like, I'm going back, I'm going back, I'm going back. And then the last time he gets told, don't go back to Jerusalem, he says this. What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. <laughs> I find this to be perhaps one of the most challenging lines in the entire book of Acts. They tell him, bad things are going to happen to you. And he's like, if worse happens, it's okay. It's okay. I just find myself so easily turned aside in small ways. I'm sure you do as well. And I want to ask this question, am I willing to die? Really, am I willing to die? That's what's unique about early Christianity. I think what's so strange about it is that so many early Christians died for what they believed, not in conquest or in war, but at the, at the hands of their persecutors. They were, they were killed. They were murdered, right? We'd already seen Stephen murdered. Uh, we're going to see, we saw James beheaded. We've seen a number of other Christians per, be persecuted, and we know the stories of many early Christians who died for their faith. <clears throat> Eleven out of the twelve apostles, even though we don't have this actually in the Bible, but tradition and, and historical research tells us that probably eleven out of the twelve disciples were martyred. They were killed for their faith. And none of them made the choice to die for their faith, like, right in that moment. They would never have died for their faith if they had not a long time before that died to themselves. Paul didn't make the choice to go back to Jerusalem in chapter 21. He made it in chapter 9 when he was on the road to Damascus and met Jesus. 
Sometimes I ask myself, would I be willing to die for my faith? And I, I want to be clear, I do not think our circumstances, either culturally or historically or geographically, deem it likely that anyone sitting in this room will die for their faith. Maybe some will. But we're in a different position than many Christians throughout history and throughout the world today. So I ask this question, would I be willing to die for my faith? And I want to be reminded that I can practice by dying to myself daily, by sacrificing my safety. Maybe not everyone in this room is called to literally die, but everyone, everyone in this room who claims Jesus to be their Lord is called to sacrifice their safety, called to live risky lives, called to live a life in which you, on a regular basis, in which we, on a regular basis, die to ourselves, expressed at our jobs, expressed in our churches, expressed in our home lives as parents and as husbands and as wives. We practice that way. Amen? Sacrificing status. Sacrificing resources. Sacrificing safety. Lastly, Paul sacrifices his plans. Paul had plans. He was going to go back to Jerusalem for a short stop where he would deliver the collection, the offering from the Gentile churches. And when he was done, he was going to go to Rome for a quick stop as a sort of launching uh, sort of base to go to Spain where he would continue his missionary work. Now, most scholars today believe that Paul died in Rome. His plans changed. He goes to Jerusalem and he's put in chains. He spends two years in prison in Caesarea. So long that different Roman leaders came in and out of power during that time. Then he's put on a boat, a boat that, because Paul is on it, gets wrecked. <laughs> and then he finally makes his way to Rome, where he's under house arrest for a little while. And at some point after that, even though Acts ends with Paul under house arrest in Rome, Paul was likely executed in Rome. His plans changed. He made it to Rome, but in chains, and he never made it to Spain. But Paul, as a faithful Jew or now a faithful Jewish Christian would have been familiar with, with proverbs like these. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. I like making plans. I do. I like, like to have detailed plans for what I'm going to do. Sort of derive some comfort from it. I think most of us do. And I, I think um, I, I spend a lot of time talking to college-age students, and I ask them questions like, what is your plan when you're done graduate. I ask every single student that question. And uh, the student here, she will always give me some sort of thing that they want to do, a, a career path. Um, and because I'm at like Biola and, they're, and they're, they're Christian students, presumably, many of them have like these sort of Christian-y sorts of things they want to do. Sometimes it's like be a pastor or it's to work for some sort of parachurch organization um, or they want to be a teacher and they, they want to sp spread the gospel in that way or do, do good things there. And, and, I, and I, what, I, what I'm so concerned about, and I think that probably most of us should be concerned about this because we do this, we have this future self. Do you guys know what I mean when I say that? We have this future self that we want to become. And that future self has achieved all of the things that we hoped to achieve, has become all the things that we want to become, has fixed all the things that we think are broken about us, or perhaps that are broken about us. And we slowly begin to idolize that future self. I will one day be that man or that woman that I see in, in my mind, and it's going to be fine. It's going to be good. We have plans. We have a will that we want to follow. Who knows what I'm talking about? Tear down that altar. Because here's the thing. If Paul 
greatest concern had been to be a missionary remembered for how courageous he was, or if his greatest concern had to be the one who brought Spain to faith and is remembered for that, if his greatest concern was to be one of the greatest Christian thinkers of all time, then him being bound in Jerusalem is a tragedy. But if his greatest concern was to be an obedient servant of God, then they couldn't really take anything from him. He could sacrifice his own plans because he's reminded that what matters most is the fact that God had called him. And that if he's turned aside to go somewhere else by God, that's just as good. I just think we live in this society that's really, really built around making future plans and achieving and working hard and pulling us up with our bootstraps and we have this future person that we want to be and I think making plans is good. I don't think it's bad. I'm saying deriving all of our hope from those plans is bad. Many are the plans in a man's heart. So Paul sacrifices his plans. Paul sacrifices his plans. And as he makes these sacrifices, all of them, his convictions are laying bare. A servant of God, called by God, seeking the unity of the church, the proclamation of the gospel. Whether he's hungry or well-fed, whether he's rich or poor, whether he's well or sick, whether he's free or in chains. And he's modeling his life. His life is modeled after the life of Jesus who if we are paying attention when we read the gospel narratives, we realize makes all these same sacrifices. Jesus himself sacrifices status. Although he was in the very form of God, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a slave. Sacrifices status. Jesus sacrifices resources. He's on the way to Jerusalem, and he's talking with his disciples about all kinds of different things, the first being last and the last being first, and the disciples want to be the ones that are remembered. And Jesus says to them, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus sacrifices the resource of the currency of his own blood. He sacrifices his safety. He goes to the same city that Paul later goes to, to Jerusalem, where he knows that he's going to die. He knows he's going to suffer and die. He tells his disciples three different times, I'm going to Jerusalem, and when I get there, I'm going to be bound, I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to die. And he goes anyways. He sacrifices his own safety, his own life. Even plans, even will. This is a hard one for us to get our minds around a little bit with God the Son. But Jesus shows obedience to the will of the Father. Even obedience to the will of the Father. Look at what happens. He goes to the Mount of Olives and he's praying on the eve of his arrest. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. That is the cup of wrath about to be poured out on him at the cross. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. That prayer was Paul's prayer, and God willing, that's our prayer. Our convictions become clear through our sacrifice. So we are left with this question. I've said, as Paul sacrifices all these things, it becomes clear what he cares about, clear what he loves, clear what his greatest convictions are. Then we're left with this question. Do our lives show that pattern? of self-sacrifice 
Because if our convictions are the same as Paul's, they should. If our lives are not characterized by self-sacrifice, perhaps we do not share his convictions. So I'm going to let that sit with us while we pray and, and await our time of communion. As the light goes, lights go down, let me pray for you, pray for us. As the music plays, you can come forward and receive the elements. And when everyone's back in their seats, I'll come and, and uh, lead us in communion. Father, we thank you for our time together today. I pray that we would search our hearts to discover what we love the most. I pray you would strengthen us in our convictions and in our courage, that you would remind us each day that your son has gone out before us. I pray that we would find our love and affection for Jesus to be so great that nothing else could get in the way. I pray for those who are here, who maybe come to realize that their lives are not patterned this way, that the idea of Jesus is an addendum or a sort of a side thing in their life that they do on Sundays. I pray that their hearts would be convicted. They would find Jesus to be their Lord and their life would be consumed by the hope they have in the gospel and the conviction they have to tell people about that hope. I pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, we want to thank you for joining us. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hope.org chapel.org